Welcome to a brand new edition of Problematic Women. I'm Lauren Evans, and hosting with me today is Virginia. Welcome, Virginia. Thanks so much for having me, Lauren. You're so welcome, Virginia. Up on today's Problematic Women, we'll be discussing the very serious and scary topic of the proliferation of child sex abuse imagery on the web. The problem is worse than you might think. We'll also talk about Kanye West announcing he's only making gospel music from now on. We'll give you an important history lesson on impeachment, courtesy of Virginia. You won't want to miss that. Then we talk to Emily Gao, director of the Richard and Helen DeVos Center for Religion and Civil Society at the Heritage Foundation, about some breaking news in religious freedom cases at the Supreme Court. And of course, we'll be crowning our Problematic Woman of the Week. Each week on Problematic Women, we sort through the news to find stories that are of particular interest to conservative-leaning or problematic women, those whose views and opinions are often excluded by those on the so-called feminist left. If you are a problematic woman or just someone who supports strong, independent women, please consider supporting us by leaving a review or rating on iTunes and encouraging others to subscribe. It really does make a difference. We are beginning today's show with a sobering topic, but a subject that is really important for us to be talking about, and that is the exploitation of children through child sexual abuse imagery. Child abuse has unfortunately existed throughout human history, but now with technological advances and mass file sharing, humanity is in a new period where more people than ever are able to access child abuse imagery. The New York Times has just released a sobering article titled, The Internet is Overrun with Images of Child Sexual Abuse, What Went Wrong?, We will leave uh, a link to that article in the show notes. I definitely encourage you to read it. But the article begins with some really powerful statistics from the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. In 1998, there were just over 3,000 reports of child sexual abuse imagery. Skip forward to 2008, and that number had grown to 100,000. In 2014, it had surpassed 1 million And by 2018, it was over 18.4 million reports. So that's a huge jump that in 20 years, we went from 3,000 to 18.4 million reports. The New York Times examined this epidemic and found that the amount of imagery trafficked through the web is too much for law enforcement and tech companies to combat. The Times reports that some tech companies have taken measures to fight these images like Tumblr, which decided to remove porn from its site to prevent this kind of abuse. But they are still very slow and struggling to combat this epidemic. Investigators say that they're doing what they can, but are massively underfunded and the amount of employee turnover uh, has led to most of the funds being directed towards training new employees. And there is so much turnover because this is a really hard field to work in where burnout is high. It's incredibly depressing and, and dark and most people don't last very long working in this field. And the Times also found that investigators are forced to prioritize the videos and images of the youngest children first because the flood of child sexual abuse images is just so high and out of control. Paula Miras is a detective at the LAPD, and she has been investigating child sex crimes for the past 10 years. Mirez told the Times, we go home and think, good grief, the fact that we have to prioritize by age is just really disturbing. And wow, yes, it it really is disturbing. 
But the explosion of demand for the creation of child sexual abuse imagery is completely out of control. And law enforcement just doesn't have the manpower right now in order to fight this horrific epidemic. And the lack of of resources theme was really present throughout the entire article, but also addressed was the fact that this is an epidemic that is so terrible and overwhelming that it's kind of easier just to ignore it. The Times said, quote, the Internet is well known as a haven for hate speech, terrorism related content and criminal activity, all of which raise alarms and spurred public debate and action. But the problem of child sexual abuse imagery faces a particular hurdle. It gets scant attention because few people want to confront the enormity and horror of the content, or they wrongly dismiss it as primarily teenagers sending inappropriate selfies. So, Lauren, I know I was kind of blown away by the numbers and the data that is presented in this article. Did you have any idea of how large of an epidemic this was? I had no idea. Virginia, you used the word sobering twice in your intro of this topic. And I think that's that's the way that I feel. The fact that it's not only that it's such an issue, but it's growing at this exponential rate. And these are people that are around us. We hear a lot about the dark web, but 18.4 million reports of child sexual abuse imagery on the Internet. How do humans stoop this low, these are unprotected, pure little beings and that they're exploiting them for sexual pleasure. And then people are, are watching it on the Internet. It's, it's just it, it's sobering. It is. It's really disturbing. And honestly, I just felt kind of sick to my stomach when I finished reading the piece because it is it is quite graphic. They get into some of the details and it's it's mind blowing. And but it it does raise this huge question in your mind of why aren't we doing something about this. And, you know, stories like this do show the depth of human depravity. So, you know, I want to ask, what do you think is important for people to walk away with after realizing that things like this do exist in the world and that these are real problems? That we all need to step up and fight this. You mentioned, Virginia, that there's such high turnover in these cases of people investigating this because I, c- I can't imagine that having to be your job and thinking about for eight hours a day. And then probably you have to go home to your own family and see your own kids and think, like, how can people do this? So we can't let this problem fall on the shoulders of a few people. We really, as a society, need to protect our children and protect ourselves from sexual immorality and don't let our minds get in these terrible places. I think because pornography is so readily available, that's what's causing this this increase. People just keep their their sexual desires keep getting deeper and and darker in the web and they they're finding these communities who are supportive of one another in this really sick child exploitation. So we need to stand up and hold each other to higher standards and stand up for the most vulnerable people in our society. Yeah, and it's definitely something that we just need to be talking about more. You know, I encourage our listeners uh, to, to share this information with your friends. Let people know that this actually is a real crisis that we need to be aware of and be tackling. And, you know, parents be having conversations with your kids, one, about how to make sure, you know, they're not going places on the Internet uh, that they shouldn't or, or being connected with predators. Um, but also, you know, I think it's it's pretty easy to just kind of stumble in 
to these sites and sometimes you don't even really realize what you're looking at. And people people need to be aware that this is out there, that it's an epidemic and that it's something that we can't we can't be silent on. Yeah, Virginia, they always say sunshine is the best disinfectant. So, yeah, shine a light on this issue. So the government does receive some funding to fight this child sexual abuse imagery, but, you know, it really isn't enough. They they should be doing more, but also nonprofits and private citizens need to be doing more within their own communities to talk about this, to raise awareness and to stop this massive growing spread of sexual abuse of children through through images and through video. A lot of the content that was talked about in this Times piece was video recordings. And then there's now this massive increase uh, in demand specifically for videos, which is really scary and depressing. Yeah. The article talked about how some of these dark online communities wanted new content. They, they, they're not even OK with the content that's out there. And they want people to record videos and with like pictures of the community's names in the video. It, it's just disgusting. And, and yeah, Virginia, I think you're right. There is no silver bullet when it comes to government funding. And so that's why we need to think of kind of coming at it with all forces. We need to have some government funding, but we also need to have nonprofits. We need to have private citizens all really holding each other to higher standards. I know I keep repeating this, but the cycle of abuse can be stopped in one generation. It's just people standing up and saying, no, this this is not happening. We are not letting this happen. And I think that's what we need to do. Yeah, no, I agree. It's it's definitely a both end of stopping the criminals and also stopping the demand for it because it's only being created because there is a demand. All right. So our next topic is a little lighter. Virginia, do you know who started a Sunday service, a church clothing line, and has an upcoming album entitled Jesus is King? Well, Lauren, I do, but I would love for you to tell me more. Uh, It is Kanye West. If you might not have heard, Kanye began Sunday services earlier this year, and that is a church service that focuses heavily on music with gospel renditions of his own songs and covers. At one of these services, Kanye shared his own testimony, and we have a clip. You know, the devil presents so many flashy, shiny objects. I have seen everything that the devil could have showed you via TV, videos, car dealerships, jewelry, houses and I tell you nothing beats God nothing nothing and of sound mind nothing beats God he also brought his Sunday service to Coachella there he set up booths for his new line of church clothes fans there lined up to find that their cheapest option was a $50 pair of socks One fan tweeted, quote, I love Kanye, but I ain't paying $225 for a pretty basic hoodie, which Kanye fan, I have to agree with you. His upcoming album has also led to mixed feelings from fans. Jesus is King was slated to release September 27th, but has still yet to service. Fans posted about being, quote, clowned by Kanye. Kanye fans are also await a documentary that goes along with the album. The film will follow his past Sunday services performance around the country and will be released in IMAX. Kanye has also announced that from here on out, he's only going to make gospel music. Virginia, as Kanye makes this transition from kind of more mainstream hip hop into gospel and religious theme music, what do you think the responses from his fans will be? 
Do you think the transition will be smooth? Do you think he'll pick up fans? Do you think he'll lose fans? My hope for Kanye is that he takes all of his fans with him into the gospel music scene and gains a whole bunch of new ones. <laughs> I think this is just so great. It's it's awesome to see someone who had this amazing platform already now recognizing, okay, I've I've made choices in my life that I, I wasn't happy with. They didn't provide the the hope and the satisfaction that I thought they were going to. And I have found Jesus and he is my answer and he is my joy. And so I, I think it's, it's super encouraging to see. And his music is great. The gospel music sounds amazing. It's not kind of what you think of when you think of that really typical kind of old gospel music. It's fun. I really enjoy it. And I'm not a huge gospel fan, but he's just talented. So I, I think anything Kanye sings, it's, you know, it's worth listening to. Yeah, personally, I am so excited for this album. I just made Thalia, our producer in Virginia, before we started recording, listen to a rendition that he did of Tracy Chapman's Fast Car. And it was a uh, gospel kind of religious version. It was it's just so good. It's on YouTube. I'll, I'll, uh, I don't I think it's a pirated link, so I don't want to add it to the show notes. But just go ahead and, and YouTube and add Kanye West Fast Car and you'll you'll be able to find it. So, yeah. A lot of people are kind of questioning behind this album, Kanye West, my buddy just bought a $50 Jesus is King shirt. So on one hand, his testimony seems really powerful. He's talked about, you know, how his religion has brought him close to, closer to his wife and to his children. It's very public that Kanye was close to his mom and his mom was very religious and she died probably around 10 years ago. Um, and that kind of brought him in at a dark time. So, Virginia, how do you kind of weigh these two things? One, he, he seems really genuine and this seems like he's coming from a good place but there's also kind of this whole marketing campaign behind it he's missed deadlines on his album do you think he's genuine yeah i mean obviously you know we can never really know what's in a man's heart it's dangerous to assume that we know i like to hope for the and believe the best in people and from the words that he's speaking it certainly seems like he has had a real encounter with the Lord and is pursuing Christ. But we also have to remember that he's a businessman and he's an entertainer. And this is part of kind of who he is, the fabric of his being. So I think we're kind of seeing these two worlds clash where you know he's so used to kind of promoting his music and, um, you know, all of his swag. But now he has a different message that he's selling a little bit. And so there's, you know, there's maybe some tension there. Uh, but at the end of the day, I think it's all kind of part of Kanye West just being Kanye West. I keep hoping that he comes out and he's like, oh, yeah, all these $50 T-shirts and $200 sweatshirts, all the proceeds are going to charity. <laughs> you know? uh, but well, Kanye, if you're listening, <laughs> there's an Kanye, idea for you. Kanye, you are listening. <laughs> so we'll keep you updated when the, uh, if and when the album does drop. But we're, we're excited about the prospects of this. All right, we're going to take a break. But first, I want to tell you about another great podcast here at The Daily Signal. If you are overwhelmed by the 24-7 news cycle, I know I am and you probably are too. And if you're looking for a way to keep up with all that news that matters, The Daily Signal podcast brings you the top stories of the day. I co-host the Monday edition with my colleague Rob Bluey to bring you interviews with lawmakers, authors, and conservative activists. And of course, we always start your week off right with a good news story. If you are a conservative who wants to be on top of the news every day, then check out the Daily Signal podcast available every weekday morning. 
All right, Lauren, question for you. Do you remember your high school civics class? I really do not. (laughs) (laughs) I have vague memories of mine. My teacher was Mr. Jackson. He was a really sweet older man, sometimes not super interesting to listen to, but very, very kind. Uh, But to be honest, I, I do not remember learning much about impeachment. Fortunately, I, I did learn about it in college, um, but uh, it's it's one of those things that, you know, if if you don't take a government class in college or you're not forced to, um, you might not really remember how that whole system works. So we're going to go back to the classroom for just a moment and talk about impeachment. What is it? How does a president actually get impeached? Have any presidents ever been impeached? So we're going to turn to the source of this information, the Constitution. Article 2, Section 4 states, quote, The president, vice president, and all civil officers of the United States shall be removed from office on impeachment for and conviction of treason, bribery, and other high crimes and misdemeanors. Well, treason and bribery, that's pretty straightforward, but the founders did allow for there to be some vagueness when they said other high crimes and misdemeanors. And that's usually where the tension and the debate ensues. Hans von Spakovsky is a senior legal fellow here at the Heritage Foundation, and he wrote in a recent Daily Signal article titled How the Impeachment Process Works that, quote, under Article 1, Section 2 of the Constitution, the House of Representatives has the sole power of impeachment. He goes on to say, in other words, only the House can pass a resolution of impeachment alleging that a president has committed high crimes and misdemeanors. Such a resolution, which requires only a simple majority vote, is similar to a criminal indictment or by a grand jury. It is an unproven list of charges that a president has engaged in actions that warrant his impeachment. Lauren, does that kind of make sense so far? Well, first off, I love this segment. I think getting schooled with Virginia should be (laughs) a weekly thing. Um, But here, let me repeat it back to see if I've got it. So the House of Representatives is in charge of impeachment. Yes. And you only need a 50% plus one vote to actually impeach um, a civil officer, president, vice president, whatever. It, it's not like a criminal thing. It's not like, okay, you're impeached and you're going to jail for forever. When you're impeached, it's kind of like, okay, this is step one. And then if there's any criminal or any other charges that are going to follow, then you actually have to have a trial. Yeah. Wow. Wow. hundred plus Lauren. Oh, nice. Killing first, it. First A I've Getting ever received. ahead of me there. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Yes, exactly. So that's the impeachment part is all that the House does. They impeach the president, but impeachment does not mean removal. It simply means a resolution by majority vote saying that the president has committed a high crime or a misdemeanor, but the impeachment will not remove the president from office. So then how does the president actually get removed? Well, let's go back to the Constitution to find out. Article 1, Section 3 says, quote, the Senate shall have the sole power to try all impeachment. When sitting for that purpose, they shall be on oath or affirmation. When the president of the United States is tried, the chief justice shall preside and no person shall be convicted without the concurrent of two thirds of the members present. So that means that 67 of the 100 U.S. senators have to vote in agreement 
to convict the president in order to remove him from office. So when it comes time for the Senate to look at all of those charges uh, that the House has provided them with and actually try the president and vote to determine uh, if he should be removed from office or not, uh, the Senate has the choice whether or not they want to put the president on trial. So in other words, the House can spend months gathering data and making arguments and agree that, yes, the president should be impeached, but it's still up to the Senate to decide whether they're actually going to try the president. So all that time and energy on behalf of the House could ultimately end up being for nothing. And only two presidents ever have actually been impeached. Lauren, do you know who those two presidents are? So I know Clinton was impeached. Yes, correct. Ding, ding, ding. Ding, ding, ding. <laughs> uh, but for this... Uh... I don't know if I know who the second one is. It's Andrew Johnson. Wow. Yeah. Back in the day in 1868, he was impeached. And then, yes, Clinton in 1999. And a lot of people uh, think that Nixon was impeached, but he wasn't. He actually resigned before he could have been. But even in the cases of Andrew Johnson and Bill Clinton, they were both impeached, but the Senate didn't convict them. So they weren't removed from office and they were able to actually finish out their term. So... The Senate has never actually gone through that constitutional proceeding of getting the two thirds vote because it's never uh, process has never gone that far. So I believe that they have gone through the proceeding and taken the vote before, but never gotten enough votes. Okay, is my understanding. So quick pop quiz in review. (laughs) (laughs) So who impeaches the president, the House or the Senate? The House. Yes, correct. (laughs) Question number two. If the House impeaches the president, is the Senate obligated to put the president on trial for his alleged crimes? Yes or no? No, they they don't have to actually take up the impeachment process. Correct. And how many Senate votes are required to move the president from office? Two thirds. So 67. Yes. Yes. Lauren passes the class. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Thanks so much, Lauren. I appreciate it. Wait, I I pass A plus? Yes, you pass A plus. Nice. You're going on to the next grade. (laughs) (laughs) 4.0. Awesome. Okay, so we're going to take one more quick break. But when we come back, we have a really great interview with Emily Gal, who's really committed her life to fighting for religious liberty. Stay tuned. Welcome back. Virginia and I are in the studio today with religious liberty superstar Emily Gal. Emily is an attorney and director of the Richard and Helen DeVos Center for Religion and Civil Society at the Heritage Foundation and has spent the past 14 years fighting for religious liberty. Welcome to the show, Emily. Thank you, Lauren. There's a case that will be heard by the Supreme Court where a man who identifies as a woman is alleging sex discrimination after being fired from their job at a funeral home. Can you tell us some more about this case, Emily? Yes. Well, the Harris Funeral Homes case originated when a male employee of a funeral home wanted to start presenting as a woman. He wanted to start dressing as a woman. And the funeral home has a sex-specific dress code, which is legal. And the funeral home owner, Thomas Rost, was very concerned not only about his employees, his female employees who might have to share bathrooms with the male employee, but also about the effect on the people whom the funeral homes serves, because these are people who are grieving at a time when they're very focused on their emotional loss. And it could be very distracting and even disturbing for them to see a man dressed as a woman. And so when the 
employee refused to comply with the dress code according to his sex, they decided to part ways with him and offered him a severance package. What happened next was that the employee and uh, the EEOC, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, got involved and sued the funeral home. And the case has percolated up through the courts. They lost in the lower court, and now it's gotten to the Supreme Court. Emily, I want to ask you just to provide a definition for sexual discrimination. So the correct way to understand discrimination on the basis of sex, it is when one person is treated more disfavorably than a person of of the other category. So if you have a person who is male who is treated worse than a person who is female because of their sex, that is sex discrimination. If you have a female who is treated worse than a male, that is sex discrimination. Sex discrimination is not merely when you treat two people differently because we treat males and females differently all the time. That's why we have some of the other sex-segregated spaces and events that we've talked about before. That's why we have sex-segregated bathrooms. We have sex-segregated sports because the courts and the American people have realized men and women are different. And so there's nothing discriminatory about having sex segregation in appropriate ways, sex-segregated spaces, sex-segregated events that involve a a person's physical capacity. But what the people in the uh, Harris Funeral Homes case are arguing on behalf of the employee who is identifying as transgender is that he was treated more poorly because of his status as a person who identifies as transgender. He's a male who wants to dress as a female. He's a male who wants to use female restrooms. But that is not sex discrimination because the funeral home would have treated somebody of the opposite sex the same way if they manifested in the same way that this employee is. So if you were a female employee of that funeral home and you wanted to identify as a male and use the male restroom and wear the male clothing that's required by the dress code and be referred to as a male, the treatment would be the same of that female employee. So that's why this case does not actually qualify for the sex discrimination category. Well, what's crazy to me about this case is that no laws were technically broken, correct? Well, the claim of the EEOC and the employee is that the funeral home owner has violated the 1964 Civil Rights Act, which prohibits discrimination on the basis of sex. The whole theory of the transgender identifying employee is that sex actually means gender identity, which there's nothing in the text that says gender identity, but they have a theory that sex should mean gender identity. So they're essentially saying that the EEOC can redefine sex, and they now want the Supreme Court to redefine sex. And the Supreme Court should stay in its own lane, which is to interpret the law, not make the law, which is Congress's duty. So Emily, this case is going to come before the Supreme Court on October 8th, where it will decide, hopefully, whether federal civil rights law that bars job discrimination on the basis of sex protects transgender people. What do you think we can expect? Well, I think you can expect from the funeral home side that they will say, you know, Congress should stick with the original public meaning of what the word sex meant in 1964. And that is an established uh, way of interpreting the law that the court should refer to the original public meaning, which means what did the public, what did a regular person in the general public understand sex to mean, not what did a particular member of Congress think. And I think everyone 
pretty much agrees that in 1964, the word sex meant biological sex, male or female, not you know a person's subjective self-perception of their gender, which is what gender identity means. And so I think there will be a lot of discussion about the procedural part, which is, you know, what is the correct role of the Congress versus what is the correct role of the courts? And as your listeners may know, um, the Congress has actually been trying to amend the Civil Rights Act recently through the Equality Act to add the classes of sexual orientation and gender identity. So the fact that the Equality Act um, is being introduced in Congress sort of begs the question, well, if sex already meant gender identity, why would you have to add it through this legislation? And we also know that through the decades that Congress has actually dealt with the question of gender identity, sometimes they have added it to legislation like the Violence Against Women Act, but sometimes they have declined. They have rejected the addition of the term gender identity. So the historical record is pretty clear. Congress knows that gender identity and sex are two different things. So if if SCOTUS rules that gender identity does not apply to federal civil rights law, will that create uh, a roadblock for Congress to move forward with the passage of the Equality Act? Well, I think it will clarify what the current understanding of the Civil Rights Act should be. And I think it will make it more difficult for the EEOC to continue to politicize these cases. But I don't think it will make it more difficult in a procedural sense for Congress to try and pass something like the Equality Act. However, I do think it could make the public support for something like the Equality Act change because I think one of the interesting things about this case is that it will bring to the forefront some of the issues that we've talked about, how gender identity essentially erases women as a coherent category in the law. So we've seen the manifestation of this in several cases, like the homeless shelter in Alaska. Um, They were sued because they would not allow a man into a space that was reserved for women who had been battered and abused and trafficked. And the whole theory behind the male plaintiff's uh, case was that he was being discriminated against on the basis of gender identity. So we see from that case that when you introduce the idea of gender identity, it erases the protections in the law for women, for their safety and the privacy. And there are a number of other cases um, with women's sports and with... Um, Unfortunately, a a girl in a public school in Georgia being sexually assaulted after the school adopted a transgender bathroom policy. Emily, I'm glad that you brought up the Alaska case about the homeless shelter. I want to get into that for a moment. Let me just give a little bit of background to our, our listeners if they're not familiar. The Hope Center is a Christian nonprofit women's homeless shelter in Anchorage, Alaska, And uh, right now we have some great news that we just received this week that they are now free to continue serving homeless women without the threat of looming legal action or even being shut down. And the reason why that threat arose to them was in January 2018, a drunk and injured man dressed in a pink nightgown tried to gain access to the Hope Center. During the day, the center does serve men and women by providing them with meals, laundry and shower services, job skills, training and clothing. But in order to provide a safe space for homeless women, the shelter uh, at night does 
only house women. So when this intoxicated biological man identifying as a woman came knocking on the center's door after hours, the Hope Center sent the individual to the hospital to get the care he needed. They even paid for the taxi. But then the Hope Center faced a complaint from the Anchorage Equal Rights Commission claiming that the center had discriminated against this individual because of his gender identity. And this appeared uh, to be an attempt to attack the center's Christian beliefs. So at that point, the Christian nonprofit legal defense firm Alliance Defending Freedom stepped in to help and they filed a lawsuit in federal court on the center's behalf. And in August, that court issued an order that temporarily stopped the city from uh, misplaying this law against the Hope Center. So, Emily, I want to ask you, how how big of a win is this? And do you think this is actually the end of this case or will there be maybe an appeal? Well, I think it's a very big win, not only for the Hope Center, but for similarly situated women's shelters and other spaces for women around the country. I think it's a great precedent. Um, my understanding is that there was a settlement. So if there was a settlement, I don't expect that they, this will be relitigated. One thing that I, I've learned since this case has come out is that Anchorage actually has a higher than normal population of women who have been sex trafficked because it's kind of a middle point between Russia and the United States. And so the fact that these women, they, they need a, a safe space. How unique is this case? And are faith-based women's homeless shelters under attack pretty much everywhere? Unfortunately, this is not a totally unique case because we've also seen a case in California called Pavarello House where I believe it was a secular women's shelter where the women were forced to shower with a man who was apparently making, they allege, lewd uh, comments towards them in the showers. And it was actually the women in that case who um, sued because they did not want to be housed with a man and have to share intimate facilities with a man. So I think that, unfortunately, wherever we see these laws um, that have sexual orientation and gender identity in addition to the other protected categories, there is a possibility that women's safety and privacy will be compromised in spaces that used to be for their protection. So the the name of the act is the Equality Act, and it puts, I think, our listeners and people who believe in, in religious liberty in a hard place when somebody's like, man, why aren't you for equality? So what what is kind of misunderstood about this case and what are some talking points that our listeners can use when put in this hard place of, of wanting to love all people but wanting to protect women? Well, I think the term equality has been uh, misused. I think that one basic thing you can say is that, you know, all people have dignity and deserve to be treated with respect. So all people have uh, equal status. But not all ideas have equal status, and not, we don't have to agree on all ideas. And what the Equality Act would do is basically adopt a government orthodoxy on sexual orientation and gender identity. Now, those two categories are distinct from many of the other categories that are protected in the Civil Rights Act. So if you think of race and sex, those are both um, biological and immutable traits. Gender identity is a sub person's subjective perception of their own sex, which you know, people have the freedom to believe that, but people should have the freedom to disagree with that, you know, to say, well, I, I think you actually are either a male or a female and they don't believe in gender fluidity. And then the category of sexual orientation, again, that also involves um, a person's behavior or their conduct, which we are free to have different opinions about behavior and conduct. That is not an immutable characteristic. 
So unfortunately, what the Equality Act would do is it would lead to a government orthodoxy, and that will lead to the punishment of dissenters. Some of those dissenters will be people who have religious convictions. Some of those dissenters will be people with moral convictions. And some of those dissenters, as we've seen from the women um, who oppose the Equality Act, their objections are based on science and based on concerns for women's safety and privacy and equality. So Unfortunately, the Equality Act would establish a nationwide orthodoxy and punish disagreement. So, Emily, with cases like the Hope Center case, do you see this as the left weaponizing anti-discrimination law and then using that to attack faith-based organizations? I think that the treatment of people of faith over the past few years by the left, especially by organizations like the Human Rights Campaign and actually some members of Congress, um, has been incredibly intolerant. If you look at some of the rhetoric, the way that they describe people like um, Jack Phillips, the baker from Colorado, um, like in Colorado, you know, some of the government officials compared him to a Nazi and a slave owner. When you look at the targeting of organizations, businesses like his with, you know, boycotts and picketing, and not only that, but death threats, um, harassing phone calls. And that's unfortunately not an isolated incident. We've seen that with many of the wedding vendor cases, um, many of the cases involving sexual orientation and gender identity. There's been verbal harassment and um, economic threats, boycotts, um, and and also sometimes threats of physical violence. So unfortunately, I think our culture is at a point right now that um, the, the left's intolerance of religious beliefs about sexuality and marriage and even sex differences is um, is increasing. And so the use of these laws to punish people for disagreement, I think, is part of an overall picture of increasing intolerance um, towards people who simply hold the view that marriage is between a man and a woman and that there are two sexes, male and female. Emily, we talk a lot about on the show about the Equality Act and these transgender issues. But at the end of the day, we're blessed in the United States to have the First Amendment that protects our right to religious liberty. A lot of people in the world don't have that First Amendment protection. And you do a lot of issues talking about international religious freedom. And I know President Trump made a speech last week at the UN about international religious freedom. Can you give our listeners kind of an update about what's going on around the world with these religious freedom issues? Well, President Trump gave a landmark speech and um, elevated religious freedom at the UN General Assembly to a level that it's never been elevated before, which is very critical because the UN tends to downplay the importance of religious freedom, even though over 80% of the world's population lives under serious restrictions of religious freedom. So it really put the UN on notice and many of the countries that are the worst violators of religious freedom on notice. I thought a particularly interesting part of the um, event that he held was to spotlight the survivors of religious persecution. And some people who were there had family members who are still in prison um, in places like China and Iran. And so I think that the Trump administration has added at the UN General Assembly to the work that it's been doing for the past few years with the International Religious Freedom Ministerial Summit that um, Secretary Pompeo and Ambassador-at-Large for International Religious Freedom Sam Brownback have hosted. And they've done a great job on building multilateral cooperation. Their summits have brought together government leaders from 
over 100 countries, and it has fostered more cooperation in places like the Middle East and Asia and Europe to combat religious um, freedom violations. Emily, I want to take just a moment uh, to let you share a little bit about an event that's happening at the Heritage Foundation next week. Earlier in the show, Lauren and I took some time to talk about the epidemic of child abuse through child pornography. And there is an event that you're hosting next week at Heritage that addresses this crisis. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? Thanks, Virginia. Yes, we are very concerned about this growing epidemic of children being sexualized by adults through culture and education and healthcare. And sometimes this is actually as a result of government-led initiatives, which means that it is actually the use of taxpayer money. And so we will be looking at issues like pornography, and trafficking, also the introduction of comprehensive sexuality education in public schools, the introduction of sexual orientation, gender identity curriculum, the transgender policies in private facilities like bathrooms and locker rooms, and the increasing politicization of healthcare for children with gender dysphoria um, that's leading to harmful treatments of um, testosterone and um, surgeries on children. And so we will be bringing together thought leaders from around the country to discuss these issues with one another. And hopefully this will be a great way for parents to learn about what they can do. Uh, We'll be introducing the National uh, Parent Resource Guide on the Transgender Trend, which is a very helpful tool for parents. Give them practical um, steps that they can take if a transgender policy is being introduced in their school district, ways that they can talk to their school, and it tells them what their rights are. Um, so we're really looking forward to bringing together all of these experts from around the country to find solutions to this growing epidemic. And when is the event taking place and how can people register? The event is Wednesday, October 9th from 9 a.m. to 12 p.m. They can watch online. They can register on the Heritage website. We will have three panels on culture, education, and healthcare in that order. And we really encourage all parents to tune in at some point to this Summit because it will give them an overview of how children are being targeted for sexualization, will give them practical tools to fight back, and it will introduce them to some of the federal and state policies that can help uh, solve some of these problems. And if you are a podcast person, all of Heritage events are turned into podcasts. You can listen to it, it's almost immediate. It usually takes an hour or two for us to get it uploaded. And also, a lot of the participants in the panel will be doing interviews with The Daily Signal, which will run throughout the week and probably into the next week. Thank you so much, Emily, for joining us. We really appreciate your time and you sharing your expertise with us. Thank you. What the heck is trickle-down economics? Does the military really need a space force? What is the meaning of American exceptionalism? I'm Michelle Cordero. I'm Tim Desher, and every week on the Heritage Explains podcast, we break down a hot-button policy issue in the news at a 101 level. Through an entertaining mix of personal stories, media clips, music, and interviews, we help you actually understand the issues. So do this. Subscribe to Heritage Explains on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts today. It is now time to crown our Problematic Woman of the Week. A familiar voice on Problematic Women testified before the House Judiciary Committee in their hearing on protecting America from assault weapons. Her testimony went viral, and for good reason. Here's a clip of Amy Swearer pushing back against those on the left who are actively seeking to ban certain types of scary-looking guns. 14. 
There are some here today who still genuinely don't understand why or how anyone would need such scary-looking rifles for purposes other than mass murder. And so I have permission from my mother to explain it to you by partially embarrassing her. My mother did not grow up with firearms, and they will never be her favorite thing in the world. In fact, she'd never handled a firearm until I took her to the range for the first time several years ago. Now, I love my mother, but like every other novice with a handgun, she was quite bad. I mean, she struggled to hit a stationary target from six yards out under ideal conditions. And then she picked up an AR-15. And I watched my mother put a fist-sized grouping of lead in the center mass of a target from 20 yards out. That is why law-abiding citizens buy millions of these firearms. When accuracy and stopping power matter, they are simply better. Americans use firearms to defend themselves between 500,000 and 2 million times every year. God forbid that my mother is ever faced with a scenario where she has to stop a threat to her life. But if she is, I hope politicians protected by professional armed security didn't strip her of the right to use the firearm she can handle most competently. Go, Amy. I love it. All right. So, Lauren, you know, you wouldn't think a woman delivering these basic facts about how Americans use firearms would be so powerful. But the mainstream media so routinely ignores these facts. So we're not used to hearing them in our political or policy discussions. Do you think that's why this clip has gone viral? Yeah, Amy does such a great job on the show in front of Congress, Dr. Oz, anywhere she speaks of really breaking down the gun issue in a way that really the layman can understand. It's about protecting yourself. It's about it's not about these scary looking guns that are heavy and and big. It's about how can Americans protect themselves? I I just love this whole clip. We'll post it in the show notes. I think that that little soundbite was so powerful. But yeah, just the way that Amy is really able to talk from experience and, and talk about she knows both the personal side and also she knows really the constitutional side of this issue as well. Yeah, Amy broke it down, like you said, just in in a very simple and straightforward way. She gave us the facts and it made sense. And I think around the gun debate, that's what so many Americans have been looking for is just the logical argument for firearms and for why the Second Amendment is important. And that's exactly what Amy gave us. And she kind of did that in large part with her decision to insert her own personal perspective and personal story into her argument. And, you know, that might not have been super easy for her. But what do you think about that strategy uh, and why did it work? I think it's great. Everybody has a mother, um, whether you know the mother or not, or you have a mother figure. And and to think of them protecting themselves and how a rifle would allow them to be more accurate when it's important. I have shot both a handgun and AR-15. And yeah, it, the AR-15 is scarier looking. And I think when you go to at the range to stand up, it, it's more intimidating. But when you're actually shooting it, you're like, wow, this is not as scary. But like a little handgun, uh, you pick it up and it's, it's again, not as intimidating. But the kickback on that is, is really big. I know every time I shoot a handgun, I, I hold it wrong and I like cut up my hand. And when you shoot it, the gun goes every which direction, which makes you way less accurate. So, yeah, I think it's a really powerful illustration of if Amy's mother or if your own mother ever needed to protect themselves, what weapon would you want them to have? Something that they're not able to use or something that they can be highly accurate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that that personal story allowed it to be language that we could all understand. And the Second Amendment is such a personal 
uh, policy issue at the end of the day. You know, the right to protect yourself, to protect your family is highly personal. And Amy's testimony highlighted that in such an articulate way. For everyone listening, Amy has a monthly series that's published on DailySignal.com about the ordinary Americans who use firearms in self-defense on a regular basis. We highly encourage you to check it out. And of course, we'll have Amy back on the show very soon. And that's going to be it for this week's edition of Problematic Women. Join us next Thursday morning for a brand new edition of Problematic Women. And in the meantime, please subscribe and share. That really helps us out. Conservatives need your support in the podcast world, and we would greatly appreciate a five-star review on Spotify, SoundCloud, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. It really does make a difference. Have a great week. This podcast is a product of The Daily Signal, produced by Kelsey Bowler and Lauren Evans. Special thanks to our editor-in-chief, Katrina Trinko. We produce Problematic Women in remembrance of our dear friend and former co-host, Bree Payton.